This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello and welcome once more to the Radio Dharma. We're coming to the end of this series of programs which has covered the path to enlightenment as described by Tibetan Buddhism based on the original teachings of the great Indian Buddhist master Atisha. In recent months, the teachings have concentrated on the Bodhisattva path, which depends on bodhicitta, the mind that is focused on attaining enlightenment not only for one's own benefit, but for the benefit of all sentient beings. Basically, bodhisattvas start off realizing that they are in a state of constant unease. Even when happy, they know that things change very quickly and happiness becomes suffering in a finger snap. You know this is true. For when we are with a good friend or even out with a partner and having a good time, that friend or partner only has to say something we don't like. And even though it may be inconsequential and without harmful intention, we feel uncomfortable or irritated. I have a wonderful cartoon from a newspaper some years back in which two business colleagues, one a man, the other a woman, are sitting at a meeting next to each other. The woman looks over at the man and sees that he's looking decidedly uncomfortable. She immediately takes it that he hates her and so thinks two can play at that game and sits glaring at him and sending him hateful thoughts. In the last frame of the cartoon, a speech bubble appears above the man saying, Damn! When I sat down, I got a wedgie. And for those who don't know, a wedgie is when your underpants get caught painfully between your buttocks. Isn't that how we so often react, though? It's so easy to take things the wrong way or to make a mountain out of a very small molehill and so cause ourselves a lot of suffering. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that bodhisattvas realize that their existence has this quality of constantly being in the nature of suffering and so decide to find the way to get out of it. But they also look around them and see that everyone else is in exactly the same situation. Very, very few of us are free, so the Bodhisattva thinks, I'm only one person, but there are uncountable others who are suffering. How can I only think of my own liberation and leave them all behind? Wouldn't it be better if I could do something to help everyone? And so decides to make his or her focus the liberation and enlightenment of all suffering beings. This is, of course, a huge task, so it's not something we can take on lightly, and our recent radio programs have been pointing out what it entails and how to do it. We've gone through the methods of developing bodhicitta, that is the two of six cause and one effect method and the exchanging self for others method, and then the trainings bodhisattvas undertake to convert all their ordinary actions into enlightened actions. In other words, the six perfections, generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration, and wisdom. We've gone through all of them, including that part of concentration called calm abiding, and now we're going to talk a bit about what Buddhism, and particularly Mayana Buddhism, means by wisdom. Of course, there is conventional wisdom and ultimate wisdom. Buddhism is primarily concerned with ultimate wisdom, 
although we cannot dispense with conventional wisdom either. Anyway, before we go into that, let's take a moment to set motivation for this program. I've gone through through this many times, but it's worth saying again that the main factor that determines whether an action will have a positive effect or not is its motivation. Let's take, for instance, two families. In both are a wealthy but aging father not really able to look after himself anymore. In one family, the daughter looks after the father because she loves him, is grateful for all he has done for her, and has compassion for his old age. In the other, the son looks after the father just as well as the daughter in the other family, but he is bothered by having to care for his dad. He just wants to get on with his own life and wishes he could put his dad in a rest home. However, he's scared that if he does that, his father will leave his money and wealth to others in the family. So he puts on a cheerful face and looks after the old man as well, at least as the daughter in the other family looks after her father. The motivation, as you can see, is very different, although the actions may be very similar. The daughter is driven by the positive feelings of love, gratitude and compassion, while the son is motivated by greed and self-interest. So the long-term results will be very different. Karmically, the daughter will have a positive, happy result, but the son will experience difficulty and suffering even though his actions appear compassionate and helpful. The same applies to this radio program. If, for instance, I'm just talking here because I want a lot of respect from people who might think I'm an expert on Buddhism, this program will karmically be a cause for misery for me. People might, of course, respect me, talk to me nicely, and give me things when they see me in this life, but it's all false and temporary. In the long run, I will have used the Buddha's teachings for a purely worldly aim, and so it will not benefit me in the long term. In fact, I will endure a lot of misery because of it. However, if I talk on the radio with a pure intention to reach as many people as possible and help them to get out of their suffering forever, it's quite a different matter. Thinking that I'm doing it so that I will quickly become enlightened and so be more capable of helping eliminate countless beings suffering will be a cause for me to become enlightened. Such a thought counters my habitual self-interest and self-absorption and so opens me out to others in their suffering. And because I'm not just thinking of a few others but great multitudes, the motivation is very vast. Therefore, the positive potential I develop is also very great. So keeping all this in mind, let's now try to at least develop the greatest motivation we can. If you find yourself thinking only of your present happiness, try to widen the scope to at least your liberation from all suffering. But if you can go a step further than that, include all beings, even though you may feel that at this stage you're not able to help them all. Just the thought to want to is amazing and brings a lot of positive potential. And by putting it on your mind, it will work away and eventually you may find yourself with the courage to start treading the Bodhisattva path if you haven't started already. And now I'll stop talking for a while as we contemplate our motivation. Thank you. Now, at the end of last week's program, I spoke about how we need both calm abiding and special insight to realize the true nature of reality. 
Calm abiding makes the mind very powerful because it's a concentration in which you can put your mind on any object and it will stay there blissfully and sharply for, for as long as you like. Special insight penetrates the object you are meditating on to reveal its essential nature. Our ordinary mind is so gross, rigid and unfit that we cannot use it to penetrate anything very much even though we may have a lot of intellectual knowledge. That would be fine if with the ordinary mind we got perfect happiness. But the fact is that we don't. We only get the ongoing everlasting suffering we have become so used to. So if we want to be free, we have to develop this calm abiding and special insight. This is because our gross mind relies on a foundational mistake. We think reality exists in one way, and so develop attitudes, emotions and so on that produce unhealthy tendencies on the mind, while reality exists in a completely contrary way. Once we realize how reality truly exists, we give up forming the afflictive emotions and karmic tendencies that lead straight down the path of sorrow. So now we're going to talk a bit about this ultimate wisdom, which breaks our mistaken foundational understanding in the same way as a very powerful jackhammer pulverizes concrete. I'm going to take most of this talk from Geshe Loden's book, The Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, because the traditional explanations can be quite obscure and confusing if you don't have a firm and extensive grounding in the Buddha's teachings. Geshe Loden makes it a little easier to understand, though it can still be difficult. He says in his book, There are many forms of ignorance, but all arise from one root of ignorance, the self-grasping ignorance, so-called because it grasps at the object which it is viewing as being self-existent. Self-existence is another term for inherent existence, and it is the form of existence of which all things are empty. Holding an object as self-existent is viewing it as having a self or entity that exists independently of parts, causes and conditions. It is ignorance because the object is not known correctly. The view of self-existence or inherent existence is totally mistaken because all phenomena are empty of such a mode of existence. So that's what Geshe Loden says. So when Buddhists talk of emptiness or void, they're not talking about some kind of existential nothingness, some kind of vacuity. By emptiness, we mean a lack of existing in a certain way. Objects, ourselves included, are empty of such an existence. Basically, if we went looking for such an existence, no matter where we looked, we would not be able to find it. Like trying to find a grizzly bear in a gold mine. If we went through every single tunnel in the gold mine and did not find a grizzly anywhere, we could say the mind is empty of the existence of a grizzly bear. The difference between this example, however, and the emptiness of what Buddhists talk about is that while we might not find a grizzly bear in the gold mine, we might find one in the forest. When we talk about the emptiness of inherent existence, we are saying such an existence does not exist anywhere at all. Nothing has such an existence. So everything is empty of such an existence. What type of existence is everything empty of? Geshe Loden says, Holding an object as self-existent 
is viewing it as having a self or entity that exists independently of parts, causes and conditions. In other words, viewing something as having some kind of existence that does not depend on its causes, the conditions necessary for it to come into being, and the parts that make it up. If you look at a table, for instance, is there a table that exists separately from the causes that brought the table into existence, the conditions that allowed those causes to manifest, and the parts that the table is made up of? If there is such a separate and independent table, where is it? When we just look at the table, though, we don't ask these questions. We just look. The mind gives us a picture and we accept the picture as the real thing that exists out there. We see the table as if it is a real thing on its own, with its own kind of self-existence. We forget completely that it couldn't exist without causes bringing it into existence, certain specific conditions allowing those causes to do their stuff, and the parts that make it up. Before the table, a seed was planted and a tree grew. Someone came by and chopped the tree down, while someone else processed it and cut it up into planks. Someone else shaped the planks and other lumps of wood and joined them all into a certain shape. We all agreed to be labelled table. That was put into a shop by others and sold to us by yet someone else. Now, other than this process, no table exists. In other words, the table is empty of any other type of existence. However, with our instinctual mind, we give the table a real tableness, a real independent characteristic with real properties. In our non-analyzing mind, the table is something that exists completely in its own right, separate from everything else out there beyond our process of perception. This is what Geshe Loden calls ignorance, because as he says, the object is not known correctly. The way we see the table is not how it exists. It is not independent, with its own characteristic and tableness, its own kind of self. It is only something that exists depending on the causes, conditions and parts, the process we spoke of with a mind that labels a table. Other than that, it has no existence at all. I hope you can grasp what we are talking about here, for it's quite subtle. However, if we think about it fairly extensively, we can get some intellectual understanding. I think it is easier for modern man to understand than the people of Buddha's time, because we are more familiar with quantum physics, which goes some way to pointing to how things exist. One very interesting video that I find expresses how things are constructed is on an internet site called Molecular Expressions, which you will find, of course, at www.molecularexpressions.com. In the search box on the site, put in Secret Worlds, The Universe Within, and then play the video on the page. It takes you from deep outer space, bit by bit, to the center of a carbon atom, showing how the whole gargantuan universe and everything in it is dependent on microscopic energy particles. It's quite fascinating. That site again is Molecular Expressions. Google it if you like. The video is also on YouTube, again called Secret Worlds, The Universe Within, but it's a bit fuzzy and is much better on molecular expressions. Anyway, Geshe Loden goes on to say, The root ignorance of self-grasping is directed towards two main objects, the person 
and the other phenomena. The ignorance is the same in that it grasps at the inherent existence of its objects, but the classification of objects into self and other phenomena is important when approaching the wisdom that overcomes this basic ignorance. What he's saying here is that although the way we grasp is the same for everything we come across, people as well as things, and so the emptiness is the same for everything, when it comes to developing the wisdom that destroys this ignorance, it is easiest to consider persons and other things separately. So we talk of self-grasping of persons and self-grasping of phenomena. This is how he differentiates them. The self-grasping of person is the consciousness that grasps at the person as being inherently existent. It holds that the person exists independently of the five aggregates, which are the parts of a person. Person, self, I, and sense of identity are considered synonyms. The self-grasping of phenomena is the consciousness that grasps at any phenomena other than the person as being inherently existent. It holds that these phenomena exist independently of causes, conditions and parts. Let's go through these and clarify them a little. First we'll go through the self-grasping of person, then of phenomena. Geshe Lodin says the self-grasping of person is a consciousness. This means that it is something to do with our mind. The self-grasping had nothing to do with the actual existence of the person we are looking at. It has everything to do with our minds and how it perceives the person. This particular consciousness sees the person as if he or she has inherent existence. That means as though the person is some kind of existence that does not depend or rely on anything else but exists somehow complete from its own side. You might get an idea of this if we talk about a permanent independent soul. Some religions say we have such a soul. It's not affected by anything we do, say or think, nor is it affected by anything in our environment. It stands apart, kind of internal and inviolable, when it comes to in contact with other impermanent phenomena. Others call it the Self, with a capital S, and to the Hindus it is Atman. For Buddhists, it's a non-existent. Geshe Lodin says that the consciousness that grasps at the person in this way sees the person as separate from the five aggregates, which are the parts of the person. For those not familiar with the term five aggregates, in Buddhism the person is said to be made up of a whole number of factors, the main ones being the five aggregates. Basically, this means our body and the objects of our sense organs, which all come under the title form. Then, Feeling is a mental factor which distinguishes some experiences as pleasant, others as unpleasant, and the rest as neutral. Discrimination is as you might expect it to be. It allows us to distinguish between a rose and a rogue elephant, for instance. In particular, discrimination is important because it allows us to decide the difference between right and wrong and act accordingly. That's its main function. Compositional factors are all the other mental factors apart from feeling and discrimination that make us up, such as attachment, anger, concentration and so on. Some are wholesome, some are not, and some are neutral. And then the last aggregate is consciousness. So when we look at a person, 
we see something that is separate from those five aggregates, something that defines the person absolutely as independent. So the five aggregates are again form, feeling, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness. Now look at your partner for instance. Do you see him or her just as a collection of parts like the five aggregates and nothing else? Of course not. You will see them as a real person with an independent existence having a real self or I. Also the way that we grasp at ourselves we think there's a real inherently existing person here that is me. For instance If someone accuses you of doing something bad that you didn't do, what arises? That sense of indignation is based on a very strongly arising sense of me. I didn't do that. How dare you say that? Look at the I at that point, and it appears very strongly and independently. Imagine it and see. It seems as if the I that arises depends on nothing else but is some internal existence that is uniquely and independently me. That is the self-grasping at persons. Then Geshe Loden talks about the self-grasping of phenomena. This means anything that is not the person and includes the five aggregates as well as other things apart from ourselves, like the table we spoke about earlier. As we said, it exists only because of its causes, conditions and parts, but we see it as if it had its own kind of independent existence apart from these. That instinctual grasping is the self-grasping at phenomena. Geshe Loden goes on to say, These two self-graspings are the main objects that must be abandoned by those who wish to escape cyclic existence. Self-grasping is the source of all other delusions and is therefore the root of cyclic existence and its suffering. Abandoning self-grasping ignorance is the only way to escape the bondage of cyclic existence. Then he says, The way to overcome the two forms of self-grasping ignorance is to develop the wisdom perceiving the emptiness of inherent existence of the person and of phenomena. The self-grasping ignorance innately holds the person and phenomena as existing inherently, substantially and independently. Such a view is totally incorrect because there's no such thing as inherently existing persons and phenomena. Inherently existing phenomena and persons are completely non-existent. It is adhering to these non-existents that gives rise to the vast range of delusions that are the source of suffering. By waking from the sleep of this ignorance to the reality of the actual nature of self and phenomena, Delusion and suffering will be snuffed out. By contemplating the true nature of the person and phenomena, you will realize that they are empty of inherent existence. The realization of emptiness eliminates the two self-graspings forever. Delusions can no longer arise and suffering is never experienced. The wisdom perceiving emptiness is thus the real opponent of cyclic existence. So first we have this fundamental mistake in our view of ourselves and our world. We think that everything has its own kind of self-existence, ourselves included. But nothing has that kind of existence. If you look at the table, can you point to the thing that is the table and nothing, absolutely nothing else? You may point to the table top and say that's the table. But I will point out that no, that's the table top, not the table. 
Or I could say it's just a flat rectangular slab of wood and not the table. You could point to the legs, and again I could refute you saying that they are not the table, they are the legs, or even just chunks of machined wood. They are certainly not the table. No matter where you point, I could deny that you are pointing at the table and nothing but the table. That's because the table does not exist as something that is completely independent of its history and its parts, or for that matter, the mind that is looking at and labeling it. It is adhering to these non-existence that gives rise to the vast range of delusions that are the source of suffering. By waking from the sleep of this ignorance to the reality of the actual nature of self and phenomena, delusion and suffering will be snuffed out, says Geshe Lodin. This self-grasping, seeing things as independently, inherently existent, allows us to develop emotions to them. For instance, seeing the table as a real table, not just as a labelled collection of parts, causes and conditions, I might like it very much. I want to own it for myself, so I spend money on it and take it back to my home where I set it up in pride of place. I polish it regularly and admire it constantly. I'm very happy that it's mine. Then perhaps you may come to visit me and I give you a cup of hot tea. Although I put a coaster down so that the hot cup will not damage my beautiful table, you don't take much notice and just put the cup down straight on the table. Now I'm very upset, especially when the cup leaves a mark. I'm furious and yell at you at the top of my voice so that all the neighbors get a fright and think someone is being murdered. I make you feel terrible, and even though you are very apologetic, perhaps I will never invite you to my house again. Thus, by seeing both the table and myself as having our own independent existence, I developed attachment for it. When the table was damaged, I developed a strong negative emotional reaction which disturbed my, your, and the neighbor's tranquility. That disturbance left a propensity on my mind stream that is going to ripen into a suffering experience in the future. Maybe soon, but more probably later. We go through countless such episodes throughout our lives, perhaps not as dramatic, but with similar psychological effects. So we carry around with us this baggage of heavy negative karma, which is like our own personal torture chamber, where we are both the torturer and the tortured. This is why Geshe Loden writes, it is adhering to these non-existence that gives rise to the vast range of delusions that are the source of suffering. By waking from the sleep of this ignorance to the reality of the actual nature of self and phenomena, delusion and suffering will be snuffed out. Once we start seeing things as they really are, the phantom objects, we will no longer develop inappropriate emotional reactions to them. For instance, if I know that the table is just a collection of causes, conditions and parts, and the mind that labels a table, why will I get angry over it? It's just an ongoing process, and nowhere is there anything solidly existing from its own side as a table. It's like smoke. How can you get angry at smoke? It is never the same thing from one instant to another. But everything is like that, just a process in the middle of happening, though tables change more slowly than smoke. Still, they are changing every single instant. They are never the same one instant to the next. So the table I get angry about 
is not the same table that stares me in the face the next morning, even though it may have a mark from yesterday's incident. Once we see this, not just intellectually but actually experientially, we will no longer get angry or attached and so on, and so we will not create any more karma and all our suffering will come to an end. That is how suffering is snuffed out. Now time is up and we must go. Thank you for joining us today and I hope you'll do so again next week when we'll continue this discussion on how to realize the nature of reality. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.